Oh, Lord Almighty, Lord, we come to you because you are the sovereign king to whom we can come. Lord, we come to you because you first came to us. Lord, we come to you because you have invited us. Lord, we come to you because your son, Jesus, removed the veil, took away that which was preventing us from coming to you, and you, Lord Jesus, love to be with us. Father, we pray that tonight you would put in us a love to be with you. God the Son, we ask that you tonight would be glorified and cause us to be a part of that glorifying you joyfully. And God the Son, we rejoice to have you moving in us and through us. Enable us to worship you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two equal and opposite errors that humanity has fallen into. Now this is true no matter what your gender, no matter what your class, no matter what your race or religion or culture. Everyone, everywhere has fallen into one of two errors. That is, into being a libertine or being a moralist. The libertine or licentious person is the one who rejects all outside authority and dives into debauchery to wallow. Generation ago, this person's cry was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The moralist has a cry as well. The moralist, two generations ago, said, We don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. <clears throat> Some of you remember that. <laughs> now, one of these two errors is seen as fine. One of these two errors is the salt of the earth kind of people and are given a pass for what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Respectable sins are sins that good people get away with. You know, a little bit of bitterness here, a little bit of coveting there. Eh, gossip, no big deal. We don't think that these sins are very bad when you compare them to whatever flavor of sin our tribe is currently hating. You can think of a couple of those sins right now, can't you? Now the other group, on the other hand, gets a bad rap because they're the ones who appear to destroy their lives. These sins are blatant and they're obvious and they make for very colorful commentary that good people don't like to talk about. Now, one thing that's very interesting for those who read the New Testament carefully is that to one group of these sinners, Jesus says, go and sin no more. To the other, he has the harshest criticisms, even condemnation of. I'll let you do the remembering of which group was which. Now, 
as we get to Romans, as we start into the body of his letter, and as I've said for several weeks, that starts at chapter 1, verse 18, all the way till you get to chapter 30, chapter 3, verse 20, we see a single argument. And this argument is that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're doing, no matter when you are, you cannot be pleasing to God. Paul dives head first into the complexities of these two opposite and equal errors. And he exposes the libertine first. And he declares they will not get away from God's judgment. And all God's people said? Amen. That was a trap actually. Because we don't like those people. And all too often the church has made it clear that we don't like those people to those people and so they don't come. But we see in Paul's letter that God's judgment is already at hand. It is now felt. It is as close as their fingertips. And the individuals and cultures who dive into dissolution reveal God's wrath actively working against them. That's what chapter 1, verse 18 to 32 is all about. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 2, especially the part that we're covering tonight, verses 1 through 16, Paul is all about calling moralists onto the carpet. Paul is all about showing that both sides of this coin are dead wrong. Tonight, I want to address the moralist. The moralist is the person who believes he or she is responsible for regulating the morals of others. And I think you and I will find very easy application within the church today. Many of us fall sometimes a little bit towards those moralist sins, don't we? In Paul's comments, I think we're going to find are a little too close to home as we are sitting in our pews. But let's not worry about that yet. I want to give you our passage, Romans chapter 2, 1 to 16, in one sentence. And that one sentence is this. Every man, woman, and child, everywhere and everywhere, is guilty of breaking God's moral law, and we know it. No matter how good people look on the outside, the perfection demanded by the righteous judge results in universal condemnation. Now there are so many questions that will come up, that will pop into our minds, and I wish I had more time to address them. Obviously I don't. And some of those questions are very appropriate to ask. But we must not, as we go through this passage tonight, lose sight of two things. Two things we must keep in mind. One is that this passage is all about divine judgment. That's what it's about. It's about God's wrath being visited on people who have displeased him. And the second thing is that because this is all about God's judgment, because it is all about God's wrath, it is therefore also all about the Christian mission. It is all about 
how it is that you and I, those who trust the promises of God for us in Christ, ought therefore now to live. And we must never, no matter what questions we have, and there are legitimate questions, we must never fail to preach the good news. The big idea today is an implication of this Christian mission to partner with our Lord and Savior in accomplishing kingdom purposes. The salvation of those who are near us and who need to hear the love of Jesus. And this passage, among other things, is an attempt by Paul to explain some of the lost condition of your very good neighbors. Maybe even some of you. Whatever you do, whatever you do, never go to the Bible thinking God's talking about those people. God just may be talking to you. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and we see that God's wrath in verses 1 through 5 is in escapable. Paul writes, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." Now, let's get something out of the way right away, and that is, don't judge people. Easy application, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but let me read a quote from Dallas Willard. He says, if we would really help those close to us and who are dear to us, and if we would learn to live together with our family and our neighbors in the power of the kingdom, we must abandon the deeply rooted human practice of condemning and blaming. This is what Jesus means when he says, judge not. He is telling us that we should and that we can become the kind of person who does not condemn or blame others. If you struggle with that, just go to the Lord. Tell him. He already knows. Ask him to help you with it. And I also included in your study notes a list of passages in the New Testament, I think they're all in the New Testament, uh, that talk about judging. And I gave you my little big idea for each one. I, I preached on every single one of those passages here at Grace. Um, but that's my big idea. But I want to get back to what Paul is really doing here. Remember, as I said, starting in verse 118, all the way until we get to 320, Paul is making a single argument. And that single argument with several points, is that you cannot save yourself. You rightly fall under the imminent judgment of God. Some of us are sitting here thinking, ah, Greg, you're preaching to somebody else. I'm already saved. I urge you, I urge you, hear the word of the Lord tonight as we read this passage. 
whatever subpoints you want to make about the fact that we are not to condemn or belittle people, I agree with that, but that's not Paul's main point. Paul's point is that if you think you don't stink, then you're wrong. Because God's judgment is inescapable because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And notice, Paul does not hesitate. He doesn't die the death of a thousand qualifications. In this whole passage, this whole section of Romans, he never pauses to qualify himself. He never says, oh, you guys, I'm not talking about you saved people. He skips right past the once saved, always saved stuff because that isn't relevant to this passage, to this argument. Now, he'll get to all that. We will find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let me say that. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Continue to listen to this sermon. But now, Paul's point is that all y'all are under God's inescapable, righteous, and impartial wrath. And that is bad news. That's the bad news we need so we can hear the good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the bad news we need to feel so that we can preach the good news to those who are around us. I want to note particularly one shiny side note in our, these verses because it speaks to our big idea. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. My friends, kindness is what draws people to the Lord. You can and you must speak the truth in love. You can speak truth without allowing the offensiveness of the truth, the gospel, be compounded by your offensive attitude. One thing I've loved about Pastor Benji for all the years that he's been here is this has been a hallmark. Preach the gospel to yourself. Understand the healing power of God in your heart. And so what I want to say to these two verses is don't be harsh. Don't be harsh with each other. Over and over again, Lord Almighty, for 46 years, I have found that when I am harsh with somebody, it doesn't work. It doesn't help the situation. Preach the good news. As you know, there are two things you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven. Sin and preach the good news to non-believers. The Christian mission is to make sure that you are welcome wherever you go so far as it depends on you. Make sure that people know that you are for them as much as you are able to be. Make sure that people understand that you mean what is best, even if they think that you're kooky in what you believe. Preach the good news in word and in deed. And you need to do so because God's wrath is righteous. That's exactly what we learn starting verse 6. He, the Lord, will render to each one according to his works. 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Okay, let's get another obvious out of the way. A common question when someone reads this passage is, okay, Paul, which is it? Are we saved by works or are we saved by faith? You will never get the right answer to a wrong question. Remember, in this section, Paul wants to prove to his readers that they are unrighteous before God so that when they get to 321 and start seeing the solution to the problem of the evil in our hearts, they will be ready for it. They will have had about a chapter and a half, almost two chapters of, wow, I stand guilty before the righteous judge of the universe. The reality of God's judgment must be brought home to us. Now clearly we are saved by grace through faith and nothing Paul says here or anywhere else changes that. But it's not the question that Paul is dealing with here. And we need to hear the questions that Paul is answering here before we get to other passages. The reality of God's judgment that it is perfectly righteous is based upon what a person actually does how they live in their attitude and in their actions. Now, in this, we see this main point expressed especially in the first and the last verse. He will render to each one according to his works. And verse 11, God shows no partiality. God is righteous when he judges, and everyone will be judged the same. Jew, Gentile, old, young, rich, poor. It doesn't matter. And one of my theological heroes put it this way. He said, God's wrath is the implacable, divine hostility to everything that, it is, e- that is evil. And it is sheer folly to overlook it or try to explain it away. Let me emphasize that. It is sheer folly to overlook God's wrath or try to explain it away. The New Testament In the New Testament, the wrath of God is not an emotion telling us how God feels. It tells us rather how a holy God reacts towards sin and sinners. Sin is no trivial matter, and the plight of man is one from which they cannot rescue themselves. Wrath expresses what God is doing and what he will do with sin. That's all well and fine. Ah, I got my fire insurance. No worries. Ah! I'm clear. I'm free. Don't have to worry about all this wrath stuff. Hmm. Maybe. Or maybe Paul spends extra time in these verses telling us it goes both ways. Lad's comments are very similar to what John Stott said last week concerning the unbeliever, concerning the person who was licentious. But Ladd continues and answers the questions, 
Are we saved by works or by faith? George continues, George Ladd continues, This does not mean that the believer puts God in his debt and receives the gift of salvation because he merits it. It does mean, however, that man, even Christian man, remains responsible to God and there must be the evidence of good works to demonstrate that he is indeed seeking glory and honor and immortality. There is a reason why the New Testament continues to use the phrase, Fear the Lord. And if we are going to rightly say of ourselves, we are seeking earnestly glory and honor and immortality, there has to be a change in our attitude and actions to demonstrate it. Going back to John Stott, and this is, this is key for those of us here who are Christians who have trusted the promises of God for us in Christ. Stott says this, he says, the day of judgment will be a public occasion. Its purpose will be less to determine God's judgment than to announce and vindicate it. In other words, when all the secrets of men's hearts are revealed, the point of the revelation will be, for believers will be to show that God is justified in making the declaration, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. And as you are pursuing glory and honor and immortality, you will do things differently And the day of judgment will be one of rejoicing. Because God will say, that's my girl. And look, she proved it. Now it's true, those themselves are a gift of God. But one more quote about the Christian's judgment in particular. Romans 1.8, we brought it up a couple of times. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, Romans 8 8.1 does not exempt the believer from the eschatological judgment. Romans 14.10 We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. The reason for this is to demonstrate that the justification of the believer in history has been confirmed by the works he has performed. And he continues, The eschatological judgment of the believer is not to decide whether he is saved or not. It is to confirm his salvation in terms of good works done in the body, the body of Christ. Now what does all this mean? I just went through a whole bunch of theologians here. Let's bring this back down to Sunday evening English. It means we will be judged by our works. But not the judgment to see if we're justified. Not the judgment to see if we'll make it into heaven. God declares believers justified and there is nothing we can do one way or the other to change it. The judgment here is for rewards and punishments. If you are justified, you will be rewarded based upon your works. If you are reprobate, you will be punished based upon your works. And God will be righteous in doing so. That's the point of 6 to 11. God will be righteous in his judgment of those who are his children because we will have exercised our faith, our trust in his promises, just enough to show that he really has worked in us and through us. And after all, these works remain a gift. They are a gift of God the Spirit moving in us. And that is why we must preach the good news. My friends, preaching the good news is the only answer to 
my sinfulness, to your sinfulness, to the sinfulness of your non-believing neighbor. Preach the good news. For those of us who have not yet trusted the promises of God for them in Christ, they need the good news so that they can be justified, so that they can be declared righteous and enter into the presence of God forever and ever. For those who have been justified, we need to remember that we are saved by grace through faith for good works, chief of which tonight I'm bringing up among the many is preach the good news to those who need to hear it. In other words, every single person you know. Where do I get this? Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, I'm stepping away from my passage here for a second. The good works that we're talking about are the things that God created us to do. He enables us to do them and we walk in such a way that we are doing them. So the easy part is yours. Walk in such a way as you are doing them. Preach the good news. When you do good works, you show those around you, both believers and non-believers, that you value your trust in God's promises more than you value whatever you might have gotten by not doing those good works, by chickening out, by moving away, by running away. Now, of course, this requires that you trust Jesus because God's wrath is impartial. 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Okay, we gotta get the obvious out of the way one more time. It appears on face value, if you don't dig in very deep, that we are saved by the law. And again, the answer is no, that is not true. Why? Because again, that's not the question that Paul is addressing here. We need to take the passages of Scripture as they are. And in this one, Paul is not addressing the question of are we saved by the law. Here, we see that God has put law, a law, not necessarily the law, Mosaic law, which I don't think he's saying here. He has put law into everyone's heart. You don't have to have heard the law of Moses in order to be judged. I mean, frankly, if that were true, we would forbid missionaries. Because then those people who have never heard will just be saved, right? But that's not true. And God wants to put it in our eyes that even the good person will face the judgment of God if they have not repented. So preach the good news. 
preach the good news by telling them the bad news. That I'm a good person won't cut it. I'm a good person because I've never murdered anybody won't cut it. I'm a good person because I pay my taxes, because I give to the United Way, because my mom was a, super, a, a Sunday school superintendent. Won't cut it. There is nothing that you and I can do to be saved. That is Paul's point in these words. Paul wants his readers to know that a law is in people. We know what we are to do, even though they don't know all the law. Everyone knows enough law that they will be judged by the law they know. And believe me, better than that, believe Paul, that knowledge is more than enough to condemn us. Let us remember one more time that the people Paul is speaking to are the moralists. They're the good people. They're the kind of people you want to be your neighbor because they don't throw raucous parties late on Saturday night. These are the kind of people that get put onto church committees. Moralists, those who think it is their business to look good on the outside and to judge those around them, are very often, most often, the respectable people. Oh yeah, and they're the Pharisees. They're the hypocrites. Now, come on, Greg, you're being too hard here. We know that licentious people will face God's judgment. They know it themselves. They make jokes about when they go to hell, they'll be with all their friends. You've heard that. But unfortunately, many good people think that they're just fine. Remember, as I've already said, to one of these groups, Jesus said simply, go and sin no more. But to the other one, he called them whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside and filled with dead men's bones on the inside. Make sure that you preach the good news to yourself. Make sure that you're preaching the good news to yourself and that you remember that you are not saved by the things that you have done. You are not saved by the things that you have not done. You are saved by trusting the living God who has given us salvation for free. And that salvation comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and for the sins of every single person who would ever trust Him. Hear these hard words. And they are harsh. Hard words. Hear them so that you are drawn to the cross. Pulled irresistibly to the cross. Trust Jesus. Preach the good news. The good news, you don't have to rely on your good behavior. Rely on the reality of the cross that we will meet in a moment. Lord, as we come to your table, I pray that you would meet us here and that you would strengthen us and that you would give us grace to move forward and bring glory to you. 
Lord, give us what we need to know you here at your table.